Radio Book Club. Once again, coming your way. Uh, we, we are at 5 p.m. every first Monday of the month, and we are always here ready to talk about books, talk about what we love about books, talk about what we don't love about books. Uh, today in studio, I'm joined uh, by Alyssa. Hello, Alyssa. Hello, everyone. From the library. And of course, Jesse is here with us as well. Hi, Jesse. Good evening, everybody. Yeah, we're happy to be here. We've got a pretty full um, slated schedule today. Uh, we're excited at 5.15. We're actually going to be uh, doing a, an interview with Lee Bennett, who recently published uh, the Dugout Ranch, a land use perspective, 1875 to 1965. So just to let you know, you know, sometimes with our interviews, we go a little later, uh, but we're going to queue her up pretty quickly at 515 uh, today. So get ready for that. We're excited to uh, talk to Lee. And of course, we're here to celebrate our month of reading, our month of reading books and uh, looking at books and sharing books. And so, of course, uh, the first thing we like to do with our radio book, book club is talk about uh, news and events. Anything going on over at the Teen Center, Alyssa, for the library? Anything? There we are. Yes. With the teens. Yes. There we are. <laughs> with, with the, the teens. teens. We, we, Alyssa has recently become the teen whisperer uh, number one. Christina's <laughs> <laughs> holding down the fort right now. Yes. And just as a reminder for, I'm sure, the dozens of teens that listen to this every month. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> How many do you think we've got? One? Do you think we have I, one teen out I, there? I do. I want to believe that. There is one teen, and I'm talking to you. The teen center <laughs> opens at 3 after school because it's after school. <laughs> you have to go to school. And then you can come to the teen center. It's 3 to 8, and then we'll hang out with you the whole time after school. There's after-school <laughs> snacks. There are computers to play on after school. There are crafts for after-school. School? After-school, 3 p.m. Except Fridays, a little earlier. Yeah, right? because school is over. After-school. Right. After-school is at 2 because you're done early on Friday. Okay? <laughs> And that's the news, folks, yep. from the Teen Center. <laughs> Thank you for doing business with us. See you there after school. <laughs> and for that one teen. Thank you yeah. for listening. Spread Thank the word, friend. Yeah. <laughs> Jesse, what's going on over yonder? The library has a couple of programs this month. I'm going to go a little bit out of um, chronological order because I do want to mention um, the author we're interviewing this evening, Lee Bennett. Uh, author of The Dugout Ranch, A Land Use Perspective, is going to be um, with us. The bookstore and the library are co-hosting Lee Bennett on February 15th. That is a Thursday evening at 7 o'clock. And um, she is going to talk all about the history of Dugout Ranch down there uh, by the entrance to Needles, a cattle, a longtime cattle operation uh, ranch and um with a very a very interesting history and a lot of um has um has been kind of a formative place for creating um, policy it's one of the largest cattle operation ranches that has relied um on um, federal grazing permits and so how does that work um she's going to tell us all about it it's pretty interesting actually so that's going to be on february 15th um, at the Grand County Library, Moab Branch, at 7, uh, seven o'clock. <clears throat> Backing up a little bit, the previous week, Thursday, February 8th, in um, partnership with the League of Women Voters of Southeast Utah, the library is screening a couple of films this month. Um, the Defending the Demo Defending Democracy film series. We're going to start on February eighth with a feature film uh, based on the true story. It's called Iron Jawed Angels. Um, 
It's the true, true story of two defiant and brilliant young women who dared to make a stand for women's rights and helped shape the future of America. Uh, it's a pretty exciting story, and it'll make you, I hope anyway, make you proud of your right to vote, especially as a female in the United States. Um, I'm also, we're also continuing with this Defending Democracy film series on Thursday, February 22nd, um, where we are on a funny calendar, and it's not right in front of me, that's cute. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what constitutes anyway, a funny calendar? I'll tell you, <laughs> Instead of fussing with my phone, I think I'll just tell you about it. We're going to be showing a two-part, uh, two-part movie. The first night on the twenty-second, we're going to be showing a PBS American Experience movie called The Vote, and it is the history cool. of voting rights. All everybody's voting rights in the United States, uh, women, people of color, uh, and uh, that is. Uh, that's uh, going to be at 7 o'clock on the 22nd. The following night is Friday the 23rd, and we will follow up with part two of the vote. Uh, the League of Women Voters will have representatives there. There will be lots of information about how you can get registered to vote, um, all kinds of important information. And I'll just drop a little a little hint. We're going to have um, have a few snacks. I think <laughs> we're going to have cookies and tea, hot chocolate if you like. Um, so come on down. February 8th, Iron Jawed Angels. February 15th, Lee Bennett and Dugout Ranch. February 22nd, PBS's The Vote Part 1. February 23rd, PBS's Vote Part 2. Over and out. Yes. I loved Iron Jawed Angels. I think that came out maybe 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, I think you're right. So good. Yes. Um, so we don't have a lot of events going on this month. Uh, we've got some things shaping up more toward the end of uh, March, except for, of course, our collaboration with the Dugout Ranch event that we'll be talking more about. But we, we did have the fun experience of delivering the Books for Tots books to all of the, well, there were 11, let's see, we delivered to 10 institutions, but we um, brought books in for, or we, we got, we had 12 institutions that were actually uh, part of the program. We delivered some over there to, uh, toward Alyssa's, uh, the Student and Career Success Center. Uh, with a bookshelf, a fancy olive green and gold It really bookshelf. pulls the room together. Does it? It does. Did you, bring, did you pull a rug in there or anything um, like that's that? That's the next step. Rugs are coming. <laughs> a white Russian? No, that, <laughs> I guess I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but it has to do with <laughs> teenagers. <laughs> but yeah, we are just so excited yeah. to have more books right on because it's the student career and success center it is part of grand county school district but we're just not on campus so it's so much easier to have books just right in front of us and mm. opening up so many worlds yes the students can just dive right into i love that mm -hmm. we also with with some of the newer institutions we also delivered to the heron school and that was this just beautiful experience of walking in and having the, the students descend on us in the best possible way. So exciting. And they knew that in that box was all those little worlds, <laughs> right? And so we went over to their little library and then it was as if the books just sprung out, you yes. know, with all the little hands or the mm -hmm. wonderful hands. Yep. <laughs> and then we got this great tour of the school. Oh. And so it it's really nice to be able to actually physically take the books mm -hmm. to the institutions to see how the libraries are doing or how the, the little, you know, small little bookshelf that they're, they've got growing. Uh, we uh, went to YGP and they have had to expand their bookshelves. And uh, so it's been really cool to see that over the years. And so that kind of wrapped up the Books for Tots program for the year. And now all those magical little, little worlds are just waiting, mm -hmm. just waiting to be opened. So exciting. So, yeah, that's kind of some of the event landscape of the library and the, and the bookstore. And we've 
got a, just a couple of minutes. Let's take a look before we do the interview. Let's take a look at the end bestseller list. Jesse, was there anything on the list that kind of you wanted to actually say anything about? Well, it's been delightful to see James McBride's 2023 novel, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, mm-hmm. which was a lovely read. Just mm. absolutely wonderful. Um, it, it's been going strong ever since it was published. When did that come out? September, mm-hmm. maybe? Um, anyway, it's been it's been on the top 10, I'd say, um, for, that, for hardcover fiction, and it has soared right back up to number one, and it is deservedly so. Yeah. It's a beautiful story about uh, different cultures in a community uh, uh, getting along and uh, sort of banding together to save a young person who Mm. needs to be rescued. It's really lovely. Um, So I'm really happy that that's back up on the top. I think it made it onto a lot of people's best of the year lists around Mm -hmm. Christmas or New Year's. And so I think um, it did. The library's uh, two copies have lots and lots and lots of people waiting in line, which just makes me happy. I'm sorry for the wait, folks, but it's a really, (laughs) it's worth worth the wait. It's a great book. What's a pretty big number of waiters for a book well, at the library? I think there are currently 10 or 11 people. Waiting. Okay. I have two copies in circulation. It's right. a tiny bit over my usual threshold for getting a third copy. Uh-huh. I'm on the fence about that. I'll, uh, I'll take, uh, take suggestions. You'll get you that. It's too bad we don't have <laughs> people calling in like, oh, yeah. let us know. What do you think, <laughs> the, what do you think the threshold it's a, should it's be? It's a short read. It's a very long book, so hopefully that wait will uh, go a little bit more quickly than some other books. So that's that's what I'm excited about. I love seeing that at the top of the list. Cool. And I had it. We were discussing. Uh, actually, Lisa and I were discussing before we queued everything up here and got started. We were. Uh, my question, really, about the indie bestseller list over Christmas and until now, is what's up with Sarah Mass? Mm-hmm. Sarah J. Mass. Sarah J. Mass. Yeah. <gasps> what's up? And if you'd like to call in, <laughs> no, I'm just joking. But I, we probably would get some I callers think we have great if we have in, anyone out there listening to us. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, email I- email me actually <laughs> at Sherry at Back of Beyond Books if you have an opinion. Mm-hmm. Dot com. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the thing. We're gonna cue the question: What's up with Sarah J. Mass? Mm-hmm. But we're not gonna get there. No. We're gonna let that marinate. That we're gonna let that. Yeah. Think about it. Let's think about it. Court of Thorns and Roses. Yes. Theory. Yes. And all of the courts and all of the the roses, the roses, and the crowns, and the thorns, and the crowns, and the and the houses. And the, yes, different houses and <laughs> the fairies and and the fae. and the humans and the fae and mm-hmm. okay. What's going on? Well, we're gonna have our listeners take a little beat on that and um, amass your own opinions amass uh-huh. sarah j amass <laughs> and we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna go we're gonna go we're gonna take a, a right turn <laughs> then a left yep. and then we're gonna head over to this wonderful 30-year project yep, we're going down a bumpy dirt a road bumpy right dirt now. road mm-hmm. and we're loving it and we were so there and i'm gonna just kind of transfer Right over to Jesse, and Jesse's going to give us a, a little bit of a um, introduction to Lee and the Dugout Ranch while I cue her up. Sure. So Lee Bennett um, lives in the area. She was the district ranger on the Monticello unit of the Manti LaSalle National Forest. When she first saw the Dugout Ranch and intrigued by the operation, she began to research its history, a project that ran for more than 30 years. Uh, as her later uh, as her later work as a consulting archaeologist allowed. So Dugout Ranch grew from a 320-acre homestead with about 250 cattle to become headquarters for a mega-ranching operation, 8,000 cattle on no less than 3,100 3, square miles of private, state, and federal lands. Uniquely, um, most of this depended on uh, federal grazing permits and um, over... The um, 
nearly century that this book covers, um, federal and state and private interests had to evolve policy to protect the habitat, but also um, make help make a successful ranching operation. And I think we have Lee uh, close by, and I'd love to um, love to let her tell us about herself and sort of introduce the book. Hi, Lee, are you there? I am. I'm right here. Wonderful. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us on the air on KZMU. Um, I briefly, uh, I briefly read a little bit about what what you've been up to in the 30 years that you worked on researching this book. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, what uh, what got you so curious that you focused your energies of 30 years in this? this topic. You're fading out a little bit. I think you asked me to explain what got me interested in writing this book. Yes, please. Well, I moved down here with a change of career um, and a change of focus. I had been an archaeologist for the Forest Service in Idaho, and they moved me down here as the district ranger, which is a management position. And in the process of getting to know my district, um, I made some trips down into the Indian Creek country and met the owners of the company. And I just got curious how, how it all worked. And at that time, I rather naively thought it was a fairly well-confined ranch that would give itself over to my casual researching. <laughs> so I started to do that. And 30 years later, I ended up with enough for a book and totally had to rewrite my concept. It was not just a cute little ranch in one spot. It was a cattle empire. Wow. Um, would you tell us a little bit about... Um can you give us an overview of, this will probably be hard to convince, <laughs> but can you give us a little bit of an overview of um, how, how Dugout Ranch started and how it developed into what it is today with the Red family and um, uh, how, how it grew and, and the relationship between government agencies and this private enterprise? Well, it happened the way that most homesteads did. They were small. Um, they looked for a good supply of water. They looked for land on which they could grow crops. And in the case of, of the Indian Creek area, they also looked for areas that had good feed for horses and cattle. And so when it started out, there were several small ranches, everything, of course, being done by horse-powered equipment, um, several small ranches strung out along the creek, and each of them had its own owner and its own operation. And they, over the years, um, either bought it outright from the government or they went through the homesteading process so that they could acquire it for minimal expense. And uh, that's, that's how there ended up to be several privately owned ranches along the creek. And as happens... People always want bigger and better, and so the individual ranches were consolidated in 1895 into the Indian Creek cattle pool, meaning that all of the ranchers owned their own cattle and were free to run them in the way they wanted. But for management purposes, they put them in, into one big herd and managed it that way. 1905, those, many of those same people formed the Indian Creek Cattle Company, and they had at its heart a 320-acre homestead that belonged to one of the partners, and, that, and 250 head of cattle. And so that was kind of their beginning, and they just kept adding cattle and buying extra land and securing more water and growing more hay to feed cattle and putting up houses to put their workers in during the during the busy season and it, it just kind of kept going until about 1926 when Al Scorup and his brother Jim 
and Bill Somerville and his brother Andrew, plus Joe Titus, formed a company. Formed a, a partnership. Titus was quickly bought out, and um, that became the Scorup Somerville Cattle Company. And it was under Al Scorup's management that the place grew even more. By the time that it was sold to the Red family in the fall of 1965, it occupied somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,100 square miles of land in San Juan County and a little bit of a little bit of Colorado. Was the um, what what um, first of all what did that do to the environment? I understand that the ranges get the rangelands get gets stripped and damaged pretty quickly, and that just a year of rest isn't enough to rejuvenate. And that they were actually plowing and seed reseeding often. And um, who who was in charge of keeping track of that and whether that was working? Well, when the dugout ranch first started, there was no federal management of the range, and so they pretty much had to parcel it out among their neighbors on a gentleman's agreement, and that worked pretty successfully, but there was really no no real concept of the limitations here. Through much of the western U.S., People had more summer range than they had winter range, and so winter range was what limited the size of your operation. You could only have as many cattle as you could feed on the winter range. But down here in southeast Utah, it was quite the opposite. It was summer range that was the limiting factor. To give you an idea, for every one acre of summer range, there were five acres of winter range. And it took them a really long time to adjust to that concept and consequently as you point out the range was was pretty badly torn up and in many cases native communities were were destroyed the forest service which was the first agency to come in here and try to manage the federal land arrived in 1906 and by that time these big ranches had been running for several decades so the forest service was in an uphill battle and at the and they did what they could, but they were impeded by World War One, in which the government said, "You put as many cows out there as you possibly can. We need to raise beef and such for the troops." Well, that kind of took away all of the gains that they had made, and uh, they also had very few scientific basis for managing the range. They were pretty much doing kind of a a small farmer rule of thumb thing instead of looking at it in a much broader perspective. So there was a lot of of uphilling that the federal agencies had had to do. They had to figure out how to manage it. They had to figure out how to assess the capacity of it. They had to figure out how to rehabilitate it. None of those basic concepts or basic pieces of science were available in the um, in the early years and so instead of running a few hundred head which is what many of the ranchers run today they were running several thousand head and uh, it was it was hard on the ground hard on the water sources and it was all done until probably until the 1930s it was all done off off horseback. There weren't any roads to to haul your supplies in or to get from point A to point B with ease. You took your horse and your pack horses, and that's how you got around. So it it was also kind of a slow process. Um, the Forest Service had standards that said you had to have so many cowboys for so many head. And the ranchers took one look at that and said, we can't afford to do that. There aren't that many workers around here. We can't have, you know, that's just not going to work for us. So there was just constant differences in expectations between what the federal agencies said the ranchers needed to do and the pra- from the rancher's standpoint, the practicalities and the financial um, 
ability to meet those standards put the ranchers and the federal agencies at odds. That sounds like a familiar story, still being experienced by the ranchers and managing agencies today. You know, I'm really curious about that this spans the time frame between 1875 to 1965. A, uh, what was the reason for sort of that was the year? Was the, I, That sounds like when the Reds actually took over. And then B, do you have the history from 65 to the present uh, in your back pocket? It's going to become uh, the second book in this series. <laughs> well, A, 1875 is about the time that the commercial cattle herds began to arrive in southeast Utah. Uh-huh. So that seemed to be a good beginning point. Yep. 1965 is when the Scorup Somerville Cattle Company was purchased by Charlie Red, and a lot of things changed. Um, by 1965, there were very different federal policies in place. Charlie had a different management philosophy and a totally different kind of ranching operation. Um, so it seemed a good spot to stop my story. Also, I believe that from 1965 to the present day is up to somebody in the Red family to tell us to about. To tell the story. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't want to intrude upon their story space. Mm, that makes sense. Uh, just as a final question, Lee, what was your writing process like uh, all these years? So just little bits and pieces along the way? Yes. Um, I did research over a 30-year period mm-hmm. because it was done opportunistically. So I snatched <laughs> what I could when I had it available. I took it and dumped it into a database that ended up somewhere in excess of 6,000 records. Wow. So when it was time to write, I could sort that database and look at it chronologically. I could look at it by the names of people. I could look at it at places, and and that was a way that I had of organizing. But I dumped everything in the database without bothering to consider whether it was credible or not. Mm. So as I started to write, I had to address the credibility issue, and my goal was to not cite a fact or numbers or philosophies or whatever, unless I could find more than one source. Mm -hmm. And in the absence of multiple sources, I had to kind of gauge whether the the source I had available was credible or not. So it took a while to do that. Um, I started actually writing the manuscript several years back, and then decided in about 2021 to get serious about it and I just basically stopped doing research Mm -hmm. and started going through the data and trying to organize it and I tried chronologically (laughs) I tried by theme I tried by people and it was like looking at a big bowl of spaghetti where you've got (laughs) on one side of the bowl you've got the end of a noodle sticking up and you have to figure out where the other end of that noodle is. Yeah. And so what I ended up doing was taking a land use perspective and breaking that into the three components that are the parts of the book, the founding of the ranch, the managing of the government grass, and the outside influences in the more modern times that impinged on or helped the ranch. It's definitely, we're excited to have you come to Moab on February 15th at 7 p.m. at the Grand County Public Library. This is an incredible labor of love, Lee, and uh, we're, we're just really happy to, that we can get your sort of debut event and uh, get you in Moab and, and have and further this conversation. So thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you on the 15th. All right. Take care. Good night, Lee. Right. <laughs> so that was Lee Bennett, and that was our interview with Lee, who just wrote 
The Dugout Ranch, a la- land use perspective, 1875 to 1965, will be with us at the Grand County Public Library on February 15th at 7 p.m. We're excited to have her and um, looking forward to a, a longer conversation. Of course, you're listening to uh, Radio Book Club on KZMU 90.1 and 106.7 FM in Grand and Emory Counties, 90.7 in San Juan County and worldwide online at kzmu.org. Now let's get back to the couple of things. We're going to just maybe get back to that one question that came pre-Rocky Road headed toward, toward the dugout ranch. What is up with Sarah J. Moss for our listeners? It's really interesting. Sarah is a fantasy author and really came out on the scene not that long ago. I think it's been maybe five, six, seven years. Not, not that long. Maybe 10, but I don't even think 10. No, I I don't think so. And I I know there's the Court of Thorns and Roses series, but there are two other series that are within the same universe. Yes. Of a Court of Thorns and Roses. I think everything, maybe Crescent City isn't within that. I think think maybe everything's within the world of the Fae. And what's really uh, sort of interesting to me is... There are, you know, quite a few of her titles on our indie bestseller list. And she started out writing as a kind of straight up YA Mm -hmm. young adult novelist. And we, even in the bookstore, have taken them from the YA genre and sort of put them over into the adult genre. But they're sort of saying that that this is definitely the emerging NA genre, which is that new adult do we know about this? I love this <laughs> because, yes. Yeah. I think that is, I mean, I think it's nice to have that differentiation. Yes. In in the genres. Yeah. I But I also really like labels and <laughs> I like to know where things are and to shelve them appropriately. And I feel like it's very, very, very important. <laughs> But that's a little bit of the OCD Virgo in me. And then you've got, <laughs> well, you know, um, Sarah J. Maas is a Pisces, if that matters. <laughs> okay, Who so we're, we digress. But anyway. <laughs> uh, I so just, I'm going to ask you both a question about her. And I, I don't want to put you on the spot, Jesse, but from a librarian perspective, someone who you know is acquiring these books and sort of seeing the readership, do you have anything to say about... Um, Sarah J. Mass and sort of the phenomenon, I guess the current phenomenon or the zeitgeist, you could say. The people that seem to be reading her are, I like the term new adults. Yeah, isn't that? There's young adults, teenagers. That is such a range. I mean, one year developmentally is such a big deal. Um, So the people that have been reading her and liking her are passionately just really passionate about these books and when is the next book coming out oh my god i cannot wait a year um (laughs) we at the library try to take the content into consideration when we place books in the children's department or the young adult department and some of sarah j moss's books while they were published as ya we have moved into the adult section, yep. which we both, you know, we have we have feelings going both ways on that. But um, yes, I like. I'm not sure I want a whole other shelving designation for more mature young adults, mm-hmm. new adults. But I I like that idea, and that's yeah. the first mm-hmm. time I've heard that concept. And um, those are some books that kind of fit right in there. And those ideas. Yeah. yeah. If you kind of go to 18 on that YA, you know, it mm-hmm. sort of goes to 18, then you can take 19 to 21, Try. 19 to 22, We're, 25, go 24, tw- 24, 20, 24, yeah, 24. Yeah. Yeah. To give, mm-hmm. um, that kind of section. And I know that bookstores are starting to pull in and, um, develop that j- genre. Um, so Alyssa, you know, there's this zeitgeist. I, in some ways I feel like this harkens back a little bit to Stephanie Meyer uh-huh. and I, I, you know, I'm seeing kind of similar phenomenons happen mm-hmm. happening. 
And, you know, what have we learned since twilight, right? And, and in a way, what's going on now with these, this kind of fantasy trope, yeah. I guess. Mm -hmm. And I will say I, the last week I did read The Crown of Thorn and Roses just because I wanted to enter this current kind of zeitgeist it's very very tiktoky too it's way you know there's a lot of tiktok going on with this but what are your thoughts about content and um yeah are we where, how far have we gone with our <laughs> with our, our is it feminist to say so, how far have we gone so i <sighs> i read and still read mm -hmm. quite a bit of fantasy I was probably a little bit on the older end when Stephanie Meyer and Twilight was really coming out not to mention diehard Buffy fan <laughs> so <laughs> we love that other iterations of, <laughs> of vampires kind of like yeah mm, if you don't have and I realize that vampires are lore but there is a particular way that I like the lore of vampires. <laughs> and I did not like the way that Stephanie Meyer did it. But that's neither here nor there. But my point being, it has been really fun to love fantasy and see more and more female authors of fantasy. And I... From my observational, this is purely anecdotal. I have absolutely no research to back this up. But it seemed to me like there was a bit more female authorship in science fiction before fantasy. Fantasy was kind of a little bit of a slower jump on that kind of bandwagon type deal. But my problem remains within fantasy as I continue to read it, whether male or female authors even when female characters are centered, quote unquote, I, I think we need to reevaluate what it means to center a female character, mm. especially in fantasy, because it, they're often kind of dropped into these fantasy tropes of the hero going on an epic journey and there's a warrior and there's a knight and there's a mage and there is a wizard and like, all of that is in some way or another in all of these fantasies. But when you so often for so long, the female character was either the temptress, the witch, or the wizened, wizened old crone, or this impeccable, pure mother. Maiden. Maiden. Yeah. yeah. Like somewhere the in maiden. There. Yeah. And so even now with female authors of fantasy, I just want them to expand on those mm. those archetypes for mm -hmm. females. I, I still feels like they're they're writing them and get a lot more like perspective on how the female characters feel. But you've just read so many male authors who have written those female characters and now it just feels a little bit like it's being not reinvented, just more like of the same thing. We're still stuck in the Walmart Halloween aisle where your costume yeah. choices are hideous witch or sexy yes. kitten. <laughs> yes. And yes. And I did read A Court of Thorns and Roses. Yeah. And honestly, I'll probably read at least the majority of the series. Mm -hmm. I don't hate it yeah. at all. Yeah. But I can see how much power is at play yeah. in relationships and particularly the relationships of the main character who is a female and the power that these male fae have, I find it unsettling. And I find that unsettling in real life. So it, that's not particular to fantasy, but gosh, it feels like it's so obvious in fantasy writing. Yeah. Can either of you point to any female fantasy authors who are doing it the way yes. you see it? I like Jemison. Nice. Okay, yeah. I do. Yeah, I like her, and I like. I think Jemison. I like more. Mm -hmm. I think is a bit more nuanced. But I have really liked Naomi Novik. Mm. I don't think uh. that she's like super perfect at it, but I feel like she's m moving the needle a bit more. 
than this is, in my opinion. Yes. And I'm saying this as someone who will probably keep reading the series. And some old school, uh, there's an author named Robin Hobb, and she's mm-hmm. written mm-hmm. quite mm-hmm. a few that mm-hmm. all connect. There's a series of like 12 that go through. The very n- first one is called The Assassin's Apprentice. Uh, and and even though there's still this kind of really common, um, you know, boy, male, male yeah. lead, so to speak, um, she's such a good writer. And then she she's always kind of veering from these traditional tropes and also able to get you into the fantasy, the, the world building, I guess, mm-hmm. is really yeah. to me that, you know, which is a part of the characterization of a fantasy novel is like, or even science fiction too, is how much did you pay attention to that world? And how much do you know this world you're building? And and that's what I love about fantasy. And I just, maybe I should just write a fantasy novel, but I just you should. feel like the world building is incredible in so many fantasies. Please put the same attention into building the inner worlds and the outer worlds that the women live in just because females and women and female presenting people have lived in this world, in this patriarchal world for so long. Is that not the point of fantasy to imagine what it would be like if that was not the norm? So can can we please just please (laughs) do it differently? (laughs) Jesse, anything else? D- is there is there a fantasy writer in your mind, Jesse, that you can sort of think of at this point that would add to that? Um, I agree with you. N.K. Jemison is a yeah. great example, mm-hmm. and then I would go back to Madeline Langle. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. I know Octavia Butler is more sci-fi, but those those women mm-hmm. just dominate. They and Ursula Le Guin. And that Ursula Le yeah. Guin, mm-hmm. exa- exactly. But they are also the sci-fi, and I feel like sci-fi has yeah. been a little bit further ahead than fantasy. Point. And mm-hmm. I read both quite avidly, and there is a very real difference between sci-fi and fantasy. Here's an interesting <laughs> author who's not technically – she kind of crosses all kinds of borders, but Lydia Yuknovich. Yes. She did The Book of Jones. Yes. I'm blanking out on her more recent sort uh, was, of but it has that in, She's readable. She's cover. writing a she's writing snake a or something. Turtle. A turtle, yes. Right? yes. Yeah, she's writing a turtle. Oh We've got to find this yeah. book. I will find it. Just keep talking for just uh, a sec. <laughs> book of short stories is just outrageous, strange and wonderful <gasps> and brutally honest and creepy and wonderful but so rich so Mm -hmm. rich and with so much dimension um she champions the outsider she champions the outcast she champions people with uh maybe not a lot of social Mm -hmm. uh acclaim but deep rich inner lives that's going on with lydia thrust thrust that's what it was and you said short stories so lydia yuknovich and thrust oh my gosh just cover alone you should read that book yes um, the cover alone but we love short covers. stories and fantasy now i'm thinking of karen russell oh, oh yeah yes. word up yes we need to hear um, from her again soon oh my Where'd gosh go? i don't know so she had swamplandia One yeah which um i'm sorry to all dear listeners the far better version of where the crowd at sing <laughs> by far <laughs> like, i love it and <sighs> then her short stories is um Vampire in the Lemon Lemon Grove. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so good. And don't we have be off put by the word vampire. If if indeed that puts you off, it yeah. Doesn't uh, oh yeah, and I I do very much. That's just one of the short stories in the collection. It's called so. Her short stories are not all about vampires. I do often dive into vampire land, but not this time. Not with that one. Karen Russell. There's a, (laughs) so Court of of Thorns and Roses is the retelling of Beauty and Beast to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And there is a telling of Beauty and the Beast called Beauty by Robin McKinley. I think it came out in maybe the 80s. Okay. And it's it's YA and Uh it's absolutely stunning it's very very good and that that's where you get some of this um fantasy too coming out of the ya and juvenile and also i was thinking of um the mists of avalon did you ever read that yes oh yeah yeah i loved that the mists of avalon Mm -hmm. and that is really kind of she's able to twist those 
those tropes a little yeah. bit, and women mm-hmm. are really strong. Yeah, that's a yeah. Arthurian legend. Yes, Merlin. yes. Yeah. Okay, we have taken up some time <laughs> with this, but we we were able to kind of go through mass to get to like what's mass adjacent, you know, mm-hmm. or really not even mass adjacent. It's sort right. of what surrounds. And, you know, we can be led so kind of just so directly to books because of social media. And yes. so I think we always have to take two steps back and kind of say, all right, who came before her? And what else do I need to read around right. this author? And yeah. yeah, because ugh, all of all of the worlds lead to other worlds. I just there are yeah. other worlds than these. And I That's do from Stephen King. Re- what say that again there are other worlds than these there are other worlds mm-hmm. than these from uh, the dark tower series said all the way throughout all seven of them there are other worlds than these mm. let's mm. just let that sink for just a minute we're gonna take another maybe left turn <laughs> and then we're gonna go backwards and we're gonna go toward jesse and see where we can go from here as in our uh, round table discussion of of books what do you have on the docket over there i have another female author um even though sherry reviewed this book last year i finally got around to reading barbara king solver's demon copperhead this is a basically a modern retelling of charles dickens david copperfield which deals with uh child poverty and um uh, the terrible effects on these these young humans and, and society at large. This takes place in Appalachia, uh, Lee County, Virginia, in the early 80s. And this young man grows up getting tossed around, kind of a, a dysfunctional family and getting tossed around in the foster system. It's the early days of the, um, the opiate, uh, opiate epidemic, epidemic that was... Uh, actually the company's just laser focused on these poor poor communities opening up these pain clinics and um, hooking these people on wonderful pain killers that of course they're not addictive anyway uh, but this book uh, making it sound pretty depressing but I could not stop turning the pages this was such a wonderful read and when Sherry reviewed this she said this woman it was like she was channeling this character and I think that is super apropos um, his voice we we start um, he starts talking telling his story when he's pretty young eight or nine or mm-hmm. something and his, it's, I love how his voice develops more and more complex thoughts more and more complex sentences um, more more understanding and he's an extremely sharp uh, intelligent human as he's struggling through he knows there's nobody else out there looking out for him but himself in the long run although he does meet some kind some kind friends and adults um, it ends well it ends it's got a really great ending um, and did I mention that it's funny I know it's, it's really funny, funny. Mm-hmm. just like Charles Dickens is really funny. yeah uh, wit uh-huh. oh, very witty we're dealing with some heartbreaking circumstances and I'll tell you how much my empathy has grown and grows just understanding what some of our young people are struggling through and what the um what kind of advantages and um disadvantages are are just are thrown out there but yet we all expect people to follow this um, pretty prescribed path in life and and these Mm -hmm. standards of success quote-unquote success and um what some people are struggling with just to like show up for school every day no food and old clothes and um anyway demon copperhead what a great book really really easy to read it's quite a quite a hefty tome but um super worth it the audiobook i've heard is wonderful as well i loved the audiobook um, yes Mm -hmm. yeah barbara king solver has done it again yep i really that's that's the favorite my favorite book that i've read recently for sure Thank you. Mm-hmm. Alyssa, what are you going to well, What are you going to talk to us about? I was going to talk about another book, but we were talking earlier about when books are in front of you and you see it kind of being pushed in your direction looking at the books that come out either right before or contemporaries and one of the books on the indie bestseller list for nonfiction um, this is the first time I'm hearing of it, but I immediately thought I know a book that came before it. It's called The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory 
by Tim Alberta. Mm-hmm. And it's a book that is taking like a deep dive. Um, it seems more um, both anecdotally from Tim Al- Alberta and journalistically based off of the um, the reviews that I've read of it, of the way that particularly white evangelical Christianity is married to present day politics. And I have not read that one. It looks incredible um also if you like journalistic writing that definitely seems to be the way to go but the one that i read last year which is kind of the same but it's from a christian u.s historian's perspective it's called jesus and john wayne Mm. and that book just it is it's kind of stunning the way that she was able to go back Um, I want to say it's like pre she has like the the like pre-World War One where things really kind of start to shift politically within the evangelical Christian church Mm -hmm. and then how they're able to kind of capitalize on the optics that come with media and television and who they were able to kind of align themselves with and obviously John Wayne being a major player here and um, this kind of like strong man protect your land protect your territory in the name of Jesus and God and how that kind of Mm. interplay has impacted the trajectory of politics and it's just I, I think if you would like to be an informed voter however you'd like to vote. It's really important to understand what is impacting and what is influencing where we are today and what, where the roots are. And so this one, Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Cobes Dumez, and it's called How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Mm. So good. I remember when you read that, actually, mm-hmm. and pretty stunned by it and and threw it onto your staff picks right away immediately i wasn't even done with it and I was yeah like, this is on my staff picks forever <laughs> this is going there <laughs> um i actually um i'm reading you know i i because i like essays i end up reading them quite often and i was actually we had carried this book and then we stopped carrying it and over the holidays i was up at under the Umbrella, which is a wonderful queer bookstore in Salt Lake City. And they're doing this just amazing job up there. Uh, downtown Salt Lake City, when you walk in there, they've got the way they're formatting the bookstore is quite kind of interesting. They, they, uh, everyone that works there is on a volunteer basis, which wow. is, yeah, kind of a labor of love. And I was reminded they had a copy of How to Write an Autobiography autobiographical novel by Alexander Chi. And I I remember bringing it in and then sort of lost track of it at the bookstore and then decided when I saw it up there, I I decided to bring it back in and actually give it a go. And this is this just wonderful uh, Korean American author uh, came of age through the 80s. And he, every, every one of these chapters are in some ways, what he had to do to, to be a writer, like mm-hmm. what the odd jobs, the he was a tarot reader for a, a while, and the tarot section is, is basically about how he found his first deck, and it has to be gifted to you, and then how he was, you know, actually reading for money and then realizing that that's a dark art. <laughs> <laughs> so he probably shouldn't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it, you know, everything was sort of in advance of making sure that he could uh, stay writing. He, he has an, a really heartbreaking um, chapter about AIDS. There is the chapter about him being the student of, uh, of oh, now I'm Annie Dillard, and the, the experience of uh, being uh, her student for a while. But he also has this wonderful chapter called 100 Things About Writing a Novel. And it literally, he lists 100 things that, it's sort of like 
the autobiograph the autobiography of writing a novel itself you know like what happens when you're doing it and i'll just read the first couple number one sometimes music is needed number two sometimes silence Number three, a novel, like all written things, is a piece of music, the language of demanding, the language demanding you make a sound as you read it. Writing one, then, is like remembering a song you've never heard before. And it just goes on, and it's, it's as if he's doing a thing and observing a thing at the same time, so you're getting both perspectives. It's, and he does have um, a couple novels out there and a couple other um, nonfiction pieces. So that's How to Write an Autobiographical Novel by Alexander Chi. Okay, we are now, believe it or not, into our lightning round. Yes. And I think we could all get one more title in. Jesse? Okay, I'm really excited for a book that's coming out next month, March 12th. We can expect a new Gabriel Garcia Marquez yes, novel. Yes, I wow. just ordered that. Oh, I'm so excited. Posthumous so, found. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's been locked away in the 10 years since he died. He had just finished signing off on it while he's struggling with dementia toward the end of his life. And then at the last second, he decided it shouldn't be published. Um, and so it's languished in a vault for 10 years. His family, his children have decided this book this book is worth worth publishing and um, it is described as an extraordinary and profound tale of female freedom and desire and I believe it is in the same magical realism style that we've come to expect from him it's going to be poetic um, and discusses uh, humankind its affection for humans our experiences our misadventures especially in love possibly the main theme of all his work Gabriel, Gar Gabriel Garcia Marquez's new book until August coming next month I had an experience where I love Marquez uh, I finished Love in the Time of Cholera when I was in an airplane it hadn't even taken off yet I finished the last chapter and I still I need to go back and figure out why I dislike the ending so much that I literally wanted to take the book and just throw it down the middle aisle <laughs> <laughs> of the airplane. Right on the thing. Get so I think that should be something I do. I return maybe mm -hmm. in the next you know few months. Return to that book and figure out. I don't. I have no idea why. I disliked it. I mean, come on. Anyway, Alyssa, final final lightning. Final lightning round. Yeah. Right now, I am halfway through a book called The Vulnerables by Sigrid Nunez. I think that's how you say her last name. Um, it is another one of the books that I picked up because I saw the cover. I do a lot of that. This cover. <laughs> it is gorgeous. It's a beautiful color. It cover. It's got, it's like split in half. And so the top half has green and pink hy hydrangeas and then the bottom half upside down is the head of a green macaw and it's it's just so bright and vibrant so once again cover did not fail me so yes. <laughs> I'm halfway through um Sigrid Nunez is writing about the time that we all experienced in lockdown during the pandemic and it opens up in this funeral of a friend before the pandemic started and people kind of funerals tend to become reunions you see people you haven't seen in a really long time and they're discussing life and how they all like how their relationships have evolved and where they've been and who they were and who they are and what their next plans are and then within a week after this funeral all of their planes are shattered. Everything is different because everything is shut down. And so this novel, yes, perhaps a little bit close to home. <laughs> if you may not have processed absolutely everything that happened in 2020, which was probably all of us, but um, she does a really good job of just kind of evaluating and kind of shining a light on the liminal spaces that we all tend to inhabit from time to time and the interruptions in our lives and what do the interruptions tell us about who we are what we want and what we value and whether we want to stay where we are mm. or whether that means this interruption this dis this disruption is like we're done with that what are we, what's next what's because this life cannot go on like this and mm. so it's it's really good Mm, I love so the title. Far, halfway. 
the vulnerables the Remember? vulnerables the vulnerable people that we yeah. were all protecting yeah the vulnerable you know compromised yep. elderly yep yeah mm-hmm. it's not that long ago only four years <laughs> coming up on exactly yeah mm-hmm. wow well we've done it my friends we have done another hour of kzmu radio book club you can listen to this episode of Radio Book Club on our arch- in our archives. All of KZMU shows are automatically archived for two weeks under the Archives tab at kzmu.org. Radio Book Club is also available on KZMU Public Affairs Podcast. Find past ep- episodes of Radio Book Club and other public affairs shows wherever you get your podcasts. Um, new episodes are uploaded on Fridays. And Jesse, where can we find it? At the library? If we want to find that list. Good question. Um, let's see. If you go to <laughs> library services tab on moablibrary.org, um, under find a good book, you'll find lots of ways to find a good book. And one of them is a list of books that we've discussed on Radio Book Club. Uh, I keep it pretty current and in reverse chronological order. Uh, and that's it, folks. Thank you so much all for right. tuning in. We love you all. can hear Radio Book Club live on the KZMU airwaves every first Monday of the month at 5 p.m. Find archives and book mentions at kzmu.org.